Before we get started, I want to bring awareness to a fantastic CME course called High Performance Resuscitation Teams. This course is jointly sponsored by Mayo Clinic, Stanford EM, and Mission Critical Team Institute, and directed by our own star, Dr. Colin Bucks, and a Stanford superstar, Dr. Alvarez. The conference is April 13th to the 15th in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and you can register through the website ce.mayo.edu. Also, Alex and I are excited to announce that the emergency nurse, Andrea Hansen, won the Trauma Shears giveaway through Instagram. And this coming year, we have a lot of other exciting things to give away to you all, as I've mentioned on previous episodes, including potentially a butterfly ultrasound machine. So follow along to hear the details on how you can win this. This past year, we've seen an incredible growth in you all as a listenership in terms of where you're listening from, how often you're tuning in, and who you're telling. And we couldn't be more grateful. Thank you, thank you, thank you from Alex and I. Uh, As we move on into the next year, we hope that you'll continue to follow along, tell other people about our show. Don't forget, we always appreciate when you like, comment, or follow our show on any platform you're using. And as always, you can connect with us via Twitter at alwaysonem or Instagram at alwaysonem or through our Gmail account, alwaysonem at gmail.com. Thank you so much again for tuning in. Let's get into our show. Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the December episode of Always on EM Grand Rounds Edition. And we have a fantastic presenter today to share with you. This is the last one of the calendar year 2022, and we want to go out with a bang. And so let me introduce you to our speaker. Dr. Sergei Matov has a 67-page curriculum vitae that I'm going to try and summarize for you. He got his medical degree at the Latvian Academy of Medicine, then went on to do two years of a general surgery residency at Montefiore Medical Center, followed by completing emergency medicine residency at Maimonides and is now professor of emergency medicine at Maimonides. In terms of research, he has been awarded 20 non-industry sponsored grants that total in estimate of about $3.4 million and several more industry-sponsored grants that I'm not even including in that. As a result of this work, he has 75 peer-reviewed publications already and many more that are coming. This doesn't even account for books, book chapters, podcasts, and the like. In addition, he serves as reviewer for several journals, including, I want to highlight, Academic Emergency Medicine and Annals of Emergency Medicine, and is obviously currently Director of Research for Maimonides. From an education perspective, he has been an invited speaker around the world, including in locations like Italy, Chile, Croatia, Portugal, and South Africa. He's also invited throughout the nation and the region where he works, particularly through ASAP and AAEM. Also from an education perspective, he has previously served as Associate Residency Director for Maimonides. As you might have guessed, Dr. Matov is a leader in emergency medicine. He serves in many capacities throughout AAEM and Maimonides, including Chair of the Pain Management and Opioid Stewardship Committees. He's also mentored many individuals who are really the rising stars in our specialty. On social media, he is a leader with a very focused and influential Twitter account, I highly recommend you check it out. I've followed him for many years. His Twitter handle is painfreeed. Appropriate, of course. If you haven't already put it together, Dr. Matov is a world expert on the topic of emergency medicine pain management. Take it away, Dr. Matov. I don't know how to tell you. My ears are burning and I'm blushing and everything else. This is one of the, my by far the most wonderful introduction. Thank you so much, Dr. Blomkonde. And I really, really appreciate it. Thank you all for having me. Special thanks again, Dr. Blomkanda, for being an amazing host, amazing tour guide. I had a phenomenal touring last night on Mayo Clinic. It's something else. Never seen anything expected to do something like this before. And huge thanks to Ms. Kirk for being phenomenal hostess and accommodating me with everything else. All right, so let's get going to, and uh, I like this quote by George Arwell, and it sums up everything we know about pain. I like the last part, but in the face of pain, there's no heroes. But there's one caveat to it. Somehow I believe our George neglected to 
mention that emergency room physicians are actual heroes when it comes to pain management. And the reason we know all pain is the most common chief complaint the patient comes to our emergency department, right? Ranges, we're talking about 65 to 87% of patients have some sort of painful component in their chief complaint, whether they wanted to admit or not. And because of we, as the clinicians, are uniquely positioned to make a huge difference and become the very heroes, right? By treating pain in a safe, effective, and efficient manner by combining our pharmacological and pharmacological treatment modalities. And I tell you, I take personal pride, what we have accomplished in the past 20 years, right? We've improved our understanding of neurobiological aspect of pain. If we move from the symptom-based approach, you have a belly pain, you have appendicitis, you have a surgery, to more mechanistic approach. And we've created what is called CERTA concept. Some of you may not know CERTA stands for channels, enzymes, receptors, targeted analgesia, which allows us to combine analgesics of different classes, act on different target sites, and as a result, we can provide superior analgesia. We've become experts in uh, other guided nerve blocks, and we've developed mastery and some sort of expertise in managing patients with opioid use disorder by A, identifying them, and B, by treating them. So I really believe we do make a world to be a better place on a global scale of things. We make our emergency department a better place because we are EML guiatrists. And I want you guys to be very proud of what you do. EML guiatrists, all the science of pain. The problem is the current state of opioid epidemic in this country and worldwide, unfortunately, affected our ability to do our best by our patients. In the United States, synthetic fentanyls and heroin, worldwide tramadol made a huge impact and really made it challenging for us to be absolutely the best, as I mentioned earlier. Why? Well, there are several reasons. One of them is opiophobia. Opiophobia is a fear of prescribing order antibiotics. Opioids, for managing a variety of painful conditions. But not because we don't want to give the medication. Because as you know, government-sponsored state, local authorities, regulatory guidelines, and so set of draconian, I call them draconian, so the regulations made us really, really opiophobic. We're afraid of not wearing opioids because we don't want to, but because we're afraid there are going to be some regulatory repercussions, some administrative push to it, and we're going to be reprimanded. And this is bad. Results of opiophobia, suboptimal pain management, especially when it comes to acute pain. Second, as guilty as charged, push for alternative to opioids. Some of you who followed me in the past, I've done lots of work and I'm still doing it. I'm a very big proponent of non-opioid analgesia, not because I hate opioids. I'm not against opioids by all means. But that push for opioid alternative actually push us to start using or repurposing medications that have no analgesic benefits whatsoever to them. And as a consequence of the very second part, we are contributing, ED clinicians, to a proliferation of dangerous drug-drug combinations and drug-drug interaction, which result in excessive morbidity and, unfortunately, mortality. So I'm going to do for the next about half an hour or so, I'm going to take you on a journey with me to the world of acute pain management. And together, we're going to look at what works, what doesn't, with a twist. And a twist meaning there are some certain category of therapeutic interventions that may have a potential to it, but they're not in their prime time. And what I'm going to do to support my claims, because I'm very big on supporting my claims by using evidence, I'm going to use systematic reviews of systematic reviews. I'm going to use systematic reviews and meta-analysis, and I'm going to use high-quality randomized clinical trial, although some of them can be challenged. Well, let's just take to some of the evidence, right? Because whatever I can say, you don't ever take my words I'm saying for the face value to it. Let's have some reference to it. And let's talk about this. I could imagine the emergency department, what works, what doesn't. Again, thank you for this wonderful introduction. Very simple. I'm the attending physician in Brooklyn. Enjoy doing pain. It's been my passion for the past 15 years. And I'm extremely honored to share some of my observations with you guys. What I want to do is I'm going to go for it. And I promise you I will have enough time to take some questions. But not all. Some of will take it offline. And should you be more interested based on what you heard, shoot me an email, shoot me a DM on Twitter. And I promise I'll respond within 24 hours. Not the financial to disclose. Let's start with the first thing. What works? Time's up. And we're going to start with non-pharmacological treatment modalities. It seems sometimes foreign to us in our emergency department. Let's start with the obvious. Cryotherapy. Cold packs, right? Frequently used in the emergency department for patients presenting with acute painful syndrome of musculoskeletal or soft tissue origins. Eight to 10 minutes on, eight to 10 minutes off. Make sure we're not going to cause a frostbite. Everybody seems to be doing just fine. Recent data shows there is this tendency to use intensive targeted cryotherapy. It's a fancy word for get an ice, crush it, put in the Ziploc. Life is good. But apparently that very bad crushed ice in the Ziploc provides lower skin temperature 
and as a consequence, provide better analgesia to patient presented to the ED with acute musculoskeletal pain. Cold is very effective. Very effective. Patients who present with acute neck or back strain may benefit modestly from thermotherapy. But if I choose one, I would probably stick with the cryotherapy, at least in acute setting of the injury. Music therapy. So I must say, were you nuts? Come to my department on Monday in the afternoon. Now let's play some music to my patient. This is a jungle over there, at least in my shop it is. But there's some data that this non-pharmacologic treatment modality has been very beneficial in acute care setting, including emergency department. One study that had a licensed musical therapist out of United Kingdom that spanned over three years, including 1,500 patients, demonstrated that music therapy such as therapeutic listening, musical diversion, or music-assisted relaxation was very beneficial with respect to improving patient stress and pain, and frankly, increasing great deal of satisfaction among patients and doctors. Personally, I'm not really afraid of using music in the emergency department because of it's too loud and patients may not like it. I'm more cautious about using music therapy because I envision some of my fellow colleagues will be fighting. Mozart, ACDC, Harry Styles, Slipknot. Go figure, that's what probably gonna create some conversion. Yeah, I'm 50 years old, but I still listen to some music, as I mentioned earlier. So potential, it's definitely there. This is a revolutionary component, and I believe that's the future. And as we all know, it's been very beneficial for little people. It's really found a beautiful place in the world of pediatric emergency department, minor pain, procedural pain, anxiety, stress. Personal, I believe you should put the goggles on the kid, on their parents, isolate the parents, kid is gonna do so much better, everybody wins. The question is, is there a data supporting this use in adult patients? Not great, but several case series, some of the observational study actually proving that there is a feasibility of using virtual reality on adult patients presented with acute pain because it reduces anxiety, pain. You know what most importantly does? Reduces anger. Imagine you put a virtual reality on somebody in the waiting room. How cool it would be. But then we get to the patient, they all relax and come and collect it. So this is a potential to use it. And I'm very, very happy. Lastly, are there any DOs in the house? Thank you. Not to be disrespectful to MDs, I'm the MD, but you have a talent here. Osteopathic manipulative technique. Right? I'm not going into details and our colleague can explain to you what it's all about. Has been very beneficial in patient presenting to the D with acute pain of musculoskeletal, arthroidal, or myofascial origins. And there's a data showed that if you use them for this type of patients, you can improve their patient's uh, pain significantly. You can reduce the requirement for parental analgesia and reduce the length of stay in the emergency department. Everybody wins. And remember, I'm not advocating to use them in silos, but as a non-pharmacological therapist, as an adjunct to pharmacological, something to consider. Continue with what works. Let's look at pharmaceuticals. And we start with opioid pain medications. I'm not going to go into details. I'm just going to give you something that I believe it's very, very important when it comes to certain classes. We start with opioids. Are they effective? Yes. For acute pain? Definitely. They are effective. They are inexpensive. <clears throat> they are titratable. And most importantly, they have a reversible agent. Should we try overshoot in our environment? We can always reverse it if we need to, right? And remember, full mu receptor agonists lack ceiling effect, which means their dosages can be titrated up until two things happen. Pain is optimized, the patient tell you, doc, thank you, I'm good. Or adverse effect becomes intolerable to the point that you kind of need to stop and intervene. But let's not get to this level, right? In my humble opinion, so much emphasis was placed on quantitative approach to opioids. And those regulatory concerns I mentioned to you, specifically focusing on reduce, banish, abolish, replace, or abandon at all. Every single regulatory component guidelines to look at it, they're always stating that reduced number of pills you prescribe to go home with. But nobody ever look at the quality of opioids we prescribe. I said, it looks quality, were you nuts? First music, then quality of opioids, it's something's not connected. Well, you know what? Let me take you back in history. I love history. 3400 BC, Sumerians, one of the first tribes that discovered joyful, pleasure-like properties of opioid alkaloids. They've cultivated poppy seed, the coldest plant of joy. They felt good about themselves. Ancient Greeks, they were using opioid tinctures to put themselves into this trance-like state. 
And they call this, it's magician's remedy. We felt joyful. They felt elated. They felt like the, the king or queen of the world. All the troubles disappeared. 1200 BC, same thing. Afghani and Pakistan had this tea drinking party. Want to take a guess? Was Earl Grey? Was the Lipton? Uh-uh. They had opioid tinctures again, and they felt relaxed and tranquil, and they enjoyed it immensely. AC, Paracelsius, greatest man of the time, 16th century in France, proclaimed that Landanum, which is a tincture which was given for everything, kids, colic, teen, pregnant women, menstrual cramps, you name it, it was given. It was something to be praised of. And my favorite artist, his name is Amedeo Modigliani. When he was in Paris, he was frequent this particular institution. They're called opium dance. When he was vaporizing, calling vape, that's what people do, right? He was doing the same thing. He was inhaling vapors of opium, and he felt super elated, super happy, joyful. And some people believe one of those vapors contributed to his greatest masterpieces because under the influences. If I stop here and ask you a question, what unites all these people? Sumerians, ancient Greeks, Afghani, Pakistani tribes, Paracelsius with his tribe of French people who experienced the worst opioid epidemic in the 15th century in this country I have known, and Amadeo Modigliani. What do you have in common? Huh? There's no wrong answer, so just shout it out. They love the feeling of opioids. Anybody else? Just give me some medical words, if we could. Huh? Say it again. Say it louder. Euphoria. How often do you see in the papers and the guidelines somebody says, maybe we should choose an opioid based on their ability to cause euphoria. And you guys are amazing. They were all getting high. High, it's a street word, beloved. What's the medical word? It's euphoria. What's euphoria? Extreme feeling of being elated, joyful, orgasm to that effect. I am super good. And this is where the problem becomes. In my humble opinion, don't by all means, don't disregard that nobody should be getting 30 oxycodone acetam who knows the purpose of a splinter with 5,000 refills. No, it doesn't work this way. But please honor the fact that all opioids cause euphoria. In my opinion, euphoria is as important, if not more, than the quantity of opioids you prescribe. Because if someone who is susceptible to feel this effect and they will put themselves on a path of self-destruction because they like to experience this effect more and more and more, that's what the problem is. Euphoria is the driving force behind the opioid epidemic that results in opioid use disorder, unfortunately, overdose and death. All opioids are euphorogenic. Our goal is to choose the one that has a better balance between analgesic efficacy and safety, factoring this euphoria. Less amount of euphoria, good analgesic efficacy. Ready for the punchline? In my humble opinion, the go one opioid of choice should be morphine sulfate immediately released orally or morphine sulfate given parenterally. In a situation when morphine sulfate is either counterindicated or you believe patient may not tolerate it as well as you would have expected, fentanyl to the rescue for parenteral morphine, hydrocodone with acetaminophen known as norcolortab or Vicodin to oral morphine. Hydromorphone, oxycodone, tramadol, and hydrocodone by itself should not be used as a first even second-line defense when it comes to acute pain management in DD and at discharge. I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to give you a minute to digest. I'll take questions afterwards. My second pet peeve, actually my biggest pet peeve is, please, 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 do not use muscle as a vehicle to give somebody a medication, particularly an opioid. Why? Because first of all, absorption is erratic. You may not be sure if you get to the muscle, right, based on the body habitus. Second, it hurts. It does hurt. And the notion of inflicting pain by reducing pain never sits well with me. I'm going to give one in the muscle to, for, to go. Ah, it just doesn't, it hurts. But more importantly, repetitive opioid injection into the muscle causes aseptic necrosis. Septic necrosis known as a myo, uh, known as neck fash that requires surgery. And more importantly, it causes myofibrosis. When your muscle tissue gets replaced by connective tissue, which means nothing left there to transmit the opioid into the bloodstream. And that's how people escalate their dosing. So no, I am right. Moving along, NSAIDs. Do they work for acute pain? Unanimously agree. Yes, they do. Variety of form, variety of acute painful syndromes, and they are effective. 
three things I want to put your attention to. Some of you may have heard. First is analgesic ceiling. NSAIDs as a class follow this concept of analgesic ceiling. What is it? Analgesic ceiling is a pharmacological phenomenon that entails or implies after reaching certain dosing threshold, any future increase in the dose will not result in additional analgesia. But remember, NSAIDs are AAA agent, antipyretic, analgesic, and <coughs> say it again. Right. So the dose is going to go higher, and anti-inflammatory part of the NSAIDs will be kicking in. But adverse effect is primarily related of NSAIDs to their anti-inflammatory dosing regimen. So once again, all NSAIDs follow the analgesic ceiling dose. So for the sake of this conversation, please choose the analgesic ceiling dose when you treat acute pain. Something I want you to take home with. In a setting of acute injury, aka acute pain, degree of inflammation does not warrant a full anti-inflammatory dose of NSAIDs. Meaning, the very analgesic ceiling dose of the NSAID will have enough anti-inflammation to offset this inflammation. Does this make sense? I'm going to repeat this again because this is important. In a setting of acute tissue injury, aka acute pain, soft tissue, bone, you name it, visceral pain, degree of very inflammation does not warrant or require full anti-inflammatory dose of NSAIDs. As you've noticed, I have not mentioned chronic painful condition, such as rheumatoid arthritis or arthritis. It's a different bone game. It's an inflammatory pain. I'm talking about acute tissue injury. Second, the ultimate goal of all NSAIDs is to competitively and reversibly inhibit COX-1, COX-2 enzyme and affect prostaglandin synthesis. Within the NSAID, there are several subclasses, I see several groups. What's interesting, some of the intermediates that get those subclasses to the level of COX inhibition do not depend on arachidonic acid metabolism. This, my dear friends, form the physiologic basis for NSAIDs rotation. Case in point, 42-year-old healthy gentleman, shoveled the snow, New York, Minnesota, you know, better, comes to me, say, I have a back pain. What have you been doing? Three days taking ibuprofen. Examine, looks like musculoskeletal. Okay, so I'm going to give you ibuprofen. And he gets pissed. Because, Doc, you're not listening to me. I did tell you I did take three days of ibuprofen, and it doesn't work. So, and I felt like a jerk afterwards. And I'm like, yeah, really, it's, 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 it's a bad move. So what makes me think that my ibuprofen is better than his? And that's what got me going to this. So take a look. What do you need to know? I'm not expecting to memorize all these classes, but ibuprofen and naproxen belong to the same subclass. Ketorolac and daclofenac belongs to the different subclass. If somebody comes in telling you, I've been taking NSAIDs for that amount of time, before you go to the heavy-duty different medication, even opioids to the extent, switch them to different subclass and see what's going to happen. NSAIDs rotation. So analgesic ceiling, NSAIDs rotation. Lastly, Please, please, please be liberal, be even overzealous in utilizing topical NSAIDs in the management of acute painful injuries, most likely soft tissue, in a setting of acute pain, sprain, strain, contusions. Nothing works better than this. Head-to-head -head comparison. Two systematic reviews from uh, Cochrane. One specific look at acute pain, musculoskeletal soft tissue. 61 trial, 5,542 patients. Topical NSAIDs beat everything. Placebo, systemic NSAIDs, and other medication. Number you need to treat for Voltaren gel, 1.8. To achieve 50% change in pain score from the baseline. Subsequent Cochrane review combined acute and chronic, which I'm talking about the chronic pain, 203 RCTs, 37,000 patients. That's a lot of people. Same principle. Topic NSAIDs work magic. So, and there is a potential. Some people, what we can we combine topic and systemic? Probably not, but it could be done for the short period of time. And remember, for patients who have contraindication to systemic NSAIDs, topical NSAIDs win because the systemic absorption is negligible when it comes to bloodstream, but their absorption within the joint and cartilage and everything else is perfectly appropriate. So utilize topical NSAIDs. Moving along, Tylenol or acetaminophen or paracetamol. So let's start with the oral. So no matter how you tweak it, it's one of the weakest analgesics on the market, and it's very good for fever. It's a beautiful antiparetic. When it comes to pain, not so much. So oral acetaminophen fail to demonstrate analgesic superiority to NSAIDs in management variety of acute musculoskeletal painful syndromes. In addition, combination of acetaminophen and ibuprofen fail to provide superior analgesia to ibuprofen, for instance, alone. 
most recent systematic review of systematic reviews clearly stated that a, a oral acetaminophen should not be used for patients with acute back pain. It just does not work, and it's a high-quality evidence. Let's talk about parenteral acetaminophen, known as IV Tylenol. So as you remember, in 2010, FDA approved this medication for use in the United States. Two specialties, anesthesia and surgery, had what I called analgesic orgasm. They felt like they've got a cure of panacea for everything. They went ballistic. I was kind of pissed a bit as an EAM doc of Swiss because how come emergency medicine was not invited to this analgesic orgy? But as it happens in our friends, it was very shortly, that very analgesic orgasm because subsequent studies, and specifically when it comes to emergency medicine, did not show the results that people expected to be. Most of the studies that look at intravenous acetaminophen role in acute management from DG comes from Iran and Turkey. None of the studies were replicated or validated, specifically focusing on limp ischemia and renal colic. Furthermore, recent studies that you see with the reference to it clearly show that intravenous acetaminophen is inferior to hydromorphone. Addition of intravenous acetaminophen to hydromorphone fails to provide superior analgesia in comparison to hydromorphone alone. A last study just recently came up in 2022 by Minotin colleagues, multi-center study from Italy. Fail, uh, intravenous acetaminophen, when added to morphine, failed to demonstrate superior analgesia. Had similar rate of adverse effects, similar time to onset of analgesia. The overall spiel is when it comes to emergency department, IV acetaminophen uh, may not be as good as we thought. Am I against it? No. But this medication should not be your first line of defense. Why? Well, as I mentioned, first of all, it's not superior to opioid analgesia, frankly inferior. Cost is still prohibitive, no matter how you tweak it. And I'll give an uh, example. Oral tablet of acetaminophen in DG for periodic patients under 20 kilos, two cents a pop. Adult, four. IV for pediatric patients, $13 a pop. Adult, 29. It's a one to 675 ratio, the difference across the range. It's not a tradable. And this is my biggest pet peeve when it comes to acetaminophen. You cannot use medication that cannot be treated with exception of NSAIDs because they're really good for some visceral pain such as renal colic. And I'll let it be. Lastly, for pediatric patients, there is some potential of drug overdose. Physician prescribes the order in milligrams and nurses unfortunately misinterpret it and use medication as milliliters, 10 times overdose, eutrogenic overdose for acetaminophen, no buena. So what I'm saying is, on case-by-case -case basis, in situation where a patient may not be eligible or cannot tolerate opioids and NSAIDs, use it, but only use it one time. Because at 45 minutes after intravenous acetaminophen administration, there is no difference in concentration between IV to oral or IV to rectal. Again, I'm not against it entirely. I'm just against it to be used as the cure for everything, go one medication when it comes to non-opioid analgesia. Ketamine, that's a lecture within itself, and that's my baby. I spent a significant amount of time working on it and everything else. Obviously, we know it works. And American Academy of Immersive Medicine, American College of Immersive Physicians endorsed its use for acute painful conditions in DD, given, as we know, in sub-dissociative, aka low, aka analgesic dose of ketamine. Just briefly give us some of the data. This is the largest systematic review on evaluating the role of ketamine with respect to analgesic efficacy and safety in pre-hospital arena. Eight trials, 1,700 patients, I'm sorry, 2,700 patient results. Ketamine given in sub-dissociative dose in pre-hospital settings was found to be more efficacious in comparison to opioids, had less nausea and vomiting, but resulted in more agitation. Bunch of studies in DD, one of the first systematic review by Nick Karloff, which I was a part of it, three trials demonstrate clear non-inferiority of sub-dissociative dose ketamine given intravenously to morphine. Uh, Recently, Dr. Balzer, eight studies, 1,700 patients, showed equivalence when it comes to analgesic efficacy between ketamine and morphine with slightly more prominent adverse effect profile in the ketamine arm. But none of the patients require any interventions, right? Recently, SIG published internasal ketamine systematic review, 14 trials, 1,700 patients, compared intranasal ketamine to intravenous morphine, intravenous fentanyl, or intranasal placebo results more superior analgesia, less nausea and vomiting, but slightly more agitation as well. And the lastly, how can I skip? My Mayo Clinic own team under with Lucas um, running the study, he did a systematic review comparing intranasal ketamine 
to intranasal fentanyl in pediatric patients presenting to a variety of acute painful conditions, results short similar pain relief and slightly more dizziness and maybe slightly more agitation in pediatric patients, but none of them required intervention. So as you can see, there's a great deal of data. Okay, so as we all know, it can be given intravenously, right? Either intravenous push dose, short infusion, continuous infusion, and the absence of intravenous accesses, we can use subcutaneous red, which is unfortunately not largely used, even though skin is the largest organ in our body, or we can use intranasal red. I can tell you for the fact, adult patients seem to be having an issue with intranasal red. I personally do not like intranasal red, and like anything goes into my nose. And that's why the data primarily supporting intranasal ketamine use is in pediatric patients. Now, the rate limiting step to the broader use of ketamine across all emergency room in the United States and in the world is the development of frequent and bothersome adverse effects, so-called psychoperceptual adverse effects, primarily feeling of unreality and dizziness. And it can be really, really troublesome. So the question is, what do you do? So one of the easiest things to do is stop pushing ketamine because those psychoperceptual adverse effects are rate and dose dependent. So instead of pushing, use short infusion. Use 0.3 mags per kilo, ranges 0.1 to 0.3. Give it over 15 minutes, 20 minutes to half an hour. Study we did in my shop clearly showed analgesic superiority, or I would say analgesic efficacy when ketamine was given as a short infusion, but rate of feeling unreality in Disney is dropped by 40%. It's big. Do not push ketamine. Use short infusion. Second, you can drop the dose. Recent study demonstrated that 0.15 mg per kilo of ketamine provides similar analgesic efficacy with the short-term pain relief in the ED as 0.3 milligram per kilogram. All of a sudden now, you can do lower dose, shorter duration of infusion, everybody wins. Remember, ketamine is titratable. You give 1.15, give another one if patient desires so. But you're spreading the infusion time and you're really, really, really contributing to the pain and you're offsetting the psychoperceptual adverse effect. Lastly, in a situation when intravenous accesses are not readily available and you do not want to use skin as a vehicle of giving ketamine, which is exactly the same dose as intravenous route, and as I told you, adult patients don't seem to like intranasal route, consider utilizing nebulized or inhalational route. And I know for the fact, thank you, Ms. Kirk, that you guys just recently held the journal club. Yeah, ring the bell, and you kind of discussed the study we put together. So, beautiful. So um, I love this, and I should have brought it with me because I actually packaged it and I forgot to show how the band looks. It's a breath actuator nebulizer, which is a nifty device that has a dual mode of action. One, you can use a continuous inhalation in the blow-by mode. Should you flip the switch, it goes into what I call nebulized patient control analgesia. Nothing gets in ambient ear. Patient takes the breath, medication gets released, and there's an exhalation point. Nothing gets in um, ambient ear. Why is it important? Imagine you have a kid who needs a nebulized ketamine. Kid gets on pops on mom's lap, so giving nebulized ketamine via conventional nebulizer. Pops get fumigated, moms get fumigated, everybody's having ketamine party, respiratory gets fumigated, no bueno. These things upsets this. But more importantly, should patient, which is probably never gonna happen, are the dosing regimen we use, become loopy, they won't be able to trigger the breath. If they cannot trigger the breath, medication doesn't get released. So the overdose is virtually prevented. Again, it's not as expensive, I believe it's a seven, but I'm not selling the, the device by all means. I'm very, very transparent, but we start using more and more and more, and we've done research as you saw. There were no difference between 0.75 to 1 to 1.5 mg per kilo. We, now we're doing study comparing nebulized ketamine to IV ketamine. Hopefully I'll get to present this result to you sometime in the future. Moving along, anti-dopaminergic. Do they work? Great, they do. As we do know, right, specifically metoclopramide and prochlopyrazine are the mainstay treatment for ED headache, particularly migraine. And in addition to nausea vomiting, either related to migraine or not. Similarly, first-generation antipsychotics, such as droperidol and haldol, are very effective in taking care of pretty much of, of any nausea vomiting. Migraine headache, and as we all know, recently there's a great deal of data that this medication is very helpful in managing acute and chronic abdominal pain related to gastroparesis and recently cannabis hypermesis syndrome. We do know this medication work. What I want you to do is, please, do not co-administer parenteral dihydramine, known as the Benadryl, when you administer metoclopramide or prochlopyrazine to your patient to offset their extrapyramidal adverse effect. I know the lights, I know like the eyes. Do not. 
most recently published, two trials only, systematic meta-analysis by Miller et al., showed that there is not enough evidence to actually recommend use of intravenous diphenhydramine to offset akitesia that could be results of metoclopramide or prothyrosine. There isn't a data. Patient gets more sleepy, they get more loopy, length of stay gets worse. And so earlier study clearly stated that IV diphenhydramine does not reduce pain better than placebo. Sorry, we're done in 2006, 2007, but Dr. Freeman, it's right there. So please, this is one of the change of practice. You may not adopt it right away, but consider this. There's evidence supporting the notion that we should not be using intravenous diphenhydramine with metoclopramide and prochlorperazine. Question is, then what we do? Do not push this medication. Metoclopramide should be given over 10 to 20 minutes. Prochlorperazine over 30 to 60. I guarantee it. Akitesia goes to almost zero. Headache relief will be perfect. Slow infusion rather than the push for metoclopramide and for prochloperazine. Haldodroperidol, it's a little different. Some studies show that dopamine actually helps, but I'm just sticking to common use. So pro metoclopramide, prochloperazine, no IV dopamine. Local anesthetic, do they work? Yes, they do. And again, shape, form, colors, we know this. We know from you know, digital blocks to regional anesthesia to everything else. I always joke, if there's a nerve, it can be blocked. If there's a painful knot in the muscle, it can be triggered. So they really, really work. Right, using viscous lidocaine for certain complaints, they're just very, very useful. What I wanted to bring to your attention, just be cognizant. Anytime you do ultrasound-guided nerve block, please make sure you have intralipids nearby because local anesthetic systemic toxicity is real and it's bad, okay? Now, what I'm gonna ask you to do is, please, say, there's lots of begging today, lots of pleading, what I want you guys to do is, if you can, please, either prescribe or give it at discharge. A tiny little bottle of tetracaine or propracaine, if you're practicing in Canada, to patients who may diagnose corneal abrasion. Send them home with it and tell them, take one or two drops every four to six hours, up to 48 hours. The long-held dogma that topical local anesthetic should not be given to patients with corneal abrasion outside of emergency department because of theoretical risks of delayed corneal healing and whole host of other complaints is unsupported, not supported by the literature. Again, please, I love the looks, you guys make me so happy. Please, please, please do give, do prescribe, do instruct your patients who have uncomplicated coronary abrasion, we're not giving the dendritic ulcers, we're not concerned about the herpetic stuff and everything else. Let them take the medication. Tell them to use it up to 40, uh, 48 hours. Data clearly show there is no impairment of healing and the patient doing just fine. I had a coronary abrasion once myself. This medication saved my life. It really hurt. All right, last part, steroids. Well, there is a fair amount of data, including systematic reviews, that clearly stating that a single dose of dexamethasone is very efficacious and safe, given as an adjunct to standard therapy in patients with acute migraine headache because it reduces the recurrence of headache up to 24, up to 48, and even up to 72 hours with a number needed to treat of nine. It's very efficacious. And one single dose would not screw anybody up. Furthermore, systematic review meta-analysis of Role of steroids in patients, adult patients, presenting to the ED with a sore throat, clearly stated or demonstrated that those patients who were randomized to receive steroids exhibited 2.4 times faster resolution or complete disappearance of pain at 24 hours post-discharge than those who did not get it. It doesn't matter what the origin of the sore throat, right? Pharyngitis, tonsillitis, and everything else. Just give them steroids. One dose, they will be thanking you for it. Nitrous oxide, you guys use nitrous oxide in your shop? Got it, I envy you. So nothing really much to talk, can be used as a single entity, right? With its proper concentration, 50-50 to 70-30, can be used as an adjunct to opioid therapies, to hematoma blocks, to regional blocks, to even ketamine. And one of the largest studies I came across to it uh, included 14 trials and 1,800 patients that compared nitrous oxide to placebo into active treatment modality, showed superiority over placebo, Questionable equivalence to standard of therapy, but had patients who received nausea had much higher rates of nausea and vomiting. But please, I'm happy you guys are using it. I wish I could bring it to my shop. That's one thing we lack, actually, too. Last thing I want to talk about what works is a green whistle, aka metoxiflurane. 
This medication has about 40 years worth of history outside of the United States. That's another thing what are called FDA crimes against their own citizen, pharmaceutical crime or pharmacological crime, right? The blacks boxed it about 20 years ago because for a few cases, the patient undergo methoxyfluorine general anesthesia with a dose that's 10,000 times more than this particular device does, and they'll develop uh, fulminant liver failure. It's very efficacious. It's very effective. Used in Australia, New Zealand, made in Australia, covers the Europe right now. Probably one of the best drugs in the market. Inhalation, same thing. You can just use very, very easily. Most recent randomized clinical trial and subsequent systematic review for trial 600 patients clearly stated and demonstrated that methoxyfluorine given as a vapor, three milliliters per dose, you can do two doses apart, one hour in between, provides superior analgesia for the short-term pain relief in comparison to opioids and non-opioids. In addition to it, adverse effect from minimal, time to answer for analgesia was significantly better in methoxyfluorine group. So it's a black box in the United States. We cannot get it over. So if Mayo Clinic has any ways to get it, it would be amazing. Start making their own. But the drug is very, very effective. All right. So moving on. Now we get into my fun part. What doesn't work? And we're going to start with this medication. that will be my greatest nemesis. Let's start talking about the gabapentinoids. As you know, these are anticonvulsants. And some people use them for, now unfortunately, for anxiety. Some people use them for um, uh, therapies for the headache. But these are anticonvulsants, anti-seizure medications. With this push of opioid epidemic, as I mentioned, all this alto component to it, this medication has been repurposed and primarily start being used for patients presenting with a variety of neuropathic pain, including acute or chronic, acute and chronic low back pain, either with or without neuropathic component. FDA finally caved in, and they approved gabapentin and pregabalin for two neuropathic conditions when it comes to pain. It's diabetic painful or diabetic peripheral neuropathy and post-herpetic neuralgia. This is it. There isn't an FDA approval for sciatica. There isn't for radiculopathy, let alone there is no data that support use of this medication for acute pain. But it's been becoming a nightmare because it's everywhere, perioperative, postoperative, and including emergency department. Well, let's just take a look at it and see if this medication works. So Anki and colleagues in 2018 conduct a systematic review meta-analysis comparing analgesic efficacy, tolerability, and safety of pregabalin, gabapentin, and topiramate in patients presenting to a variety of acute care settings, including the ED, with nonspecific low back pain, acute, or lumbar back pain with radiculopathies. Eight, clin eight randomized clinical trials, 859 patients. Results, gabapentinoids were found ineffective in acute settings and an acute time of the post-discharge period, less than two weeks when it comes to pain. And they were found even more ineffective with respect to improving pain and improving disability. Please do not use gabapentinoids as an adjunct or as a single entity in patients with acute non-radicular or acute radicular pain. But here is the problem arises. This very, very study showed high quality evidence that adverse effects of gabapentinoids are horrendous. Dizziness, drowsiness, ataxia, and tremor. These are the most common adverse of the gabapentinoids, which actually forces close to 40% of patients drop out of the studies because they're becoming very, very intolerant. Now think for a second. Older early patients, well, there are multiple comorbidities, there are multiple drugs, some of them are sedative hypnotics, get put on gabapentin. Dizziness, drowsiness, ataxia, tremor, that's the beginning of disaster. How many of you have ever heard about the expression analgesic diet of death or analgesic triad of death? So analgesic diet of death is a combination of opioids and benzodiazepines. Very recently, even more prominent analgesic diet of death become in combination of gabapentinoids and opioids. Why? This is where it gets very interesting. Gabapentinoids potentiate opioid-induced euphoria. Gabapentinoids worsen opioid-induced respiratory depression. There is a great deal of data coming out of the literature, including CDC, that those people with opioid misuse who are concomitantly consume gabapentinoids and opioids the risk of dying from overdose is 2.5 times higher than those who only consume opioids. We are on the brink of another epidemic, which is gabapentinoid epidemic, and I'm begging you, please. Unless you have somebody with a post-carpetic neuralgia and diabetic peripheral neuropathy, you might consider starting this medication, but please ensure their drug-drug interactions are non-existent, and please do not combine it with opioids. I'll get to the questions, I promise. 
the um, analgesic triad of death is opioids, benzodiazepines, and gabapentinoids. So just remember this. Master Alexis, we're getting close to it. Anybody, five more minutes. Um, how many of you using these drugs for pain management in DD? I'd love to see hands so we can have a conversation outside because <laughs> that will be very troublesome. Do you know why I put this picture on? Bravo. These are the master relaxants. Do we all understand what master relaxants? We need to disengage neuromuscular junction for crying out loud in order to be called muscle relaxant. That's what these medications do and they're very effective what they do. Oops. And what are those? Well, the simple way to say it, nobody knows. If you ever look at it, well, actual mechanism of action of this medication is unknown. You know what I call this? BS. It's 21st century for crying out loud. We got to know something about this. So please, let's, for the sake of this presentation, we call them pseudo-muscle relaxant or antispasmodic medication, or nobody knows what the hell they are. Well, let's just say. So people seem to be using it. These are second line of pain management when it comes to acute back pain in the ED. 35% of adult patients presenting with non-specific acute back pain get this medication in the ED. But methacarbamol and arfenadrine contribute to a quarter of a million each annually. What are we doing? Numbers are great. Maybe it works. Let's take a look. Caution and colleagues. RCT, randomized uh, clinical trials were put into systematic reviews. 48 randomized clinical trials. 35 included acute back pain. Looked only on non-specific acute back pain, non-neuropathic, just acute back pain, period. 49 trials, 35 were acute pain, two were acute and chronic rest, chronic pain. You want to take a guess, did it work or not? They were found to be ineffective up to two weeks post discharge because change in pain score was eight on a scale of zero to 100. It's nothing. Between two to 13 weeks, they were found to be ineffective when it comes to restoration of function and analgesia. And you tell me, you know what? Fine, big numbers, very reassuring, but it's not technically ED-based. Point well taken. Our brilliant colleagues conducted planned review of four randomized clinical trials, one conducted by my good friend, Dr. Ben Friedman, on patients presenting to the ED with acute non-specific low back pain, non-radicular, who were given NSAIDs at discharge. And in addition to it, they were randomized to receive either muscle relaxant, oh, what did I just say? Pseudomuscle relaxant or a placebo. Primary outcome change in pain score and improve improvement in functional restoration by one week post discharge. These are the results. I'm not going to bore you with the data. There were no difference between placebo and muscle relaxant with respect to improving pain and functional improvement at one week post discharge. They are ineffective. But what they do is they have a very bad side effect profile, almost similar as gabapentinoids. Look at this. It's a D world everywhere. Dizziness, drowsiness, drowsiness, dizziness, dizziness, drowsiness. And again, please be cognizant. I know what you guys, population in general, we're very geriatrically oriented. We serve very exquisitely to geriatric population. They can be cognitively impaired and can be ambulatory impaired. Combining this medication with something else, it's a disaster brewing. This is not part of the diets yet or triads, but it's getting there. So the bottom line, do not use it. Last, since we're talking about the back pain. Steroids and back pain. Well, Single dose of intravenous or intramuscular methylprednisolone does not improve pain or function in patients presented to the D with acute back pain and component of sciatica. Oral steroid taper does not improve pain and function in patients presenting to the D with acute low back pain and sciatica. Single IM dose of methylprednisolone does not improve pain and function in patients presenting to the D with acute back pain and no sciatica. Verdict, don't use it. While one dose may be safe, I'll get to the question in 30 seconds. We're wrapping up. I promise. I just want to get finished the flow and then we can get it. While they might not be as detrimental as anything else because it's a single dose, why would you give something that doesn't work? So just remember that based on the evidence, they're not useful when it comes to acute back pain. We're getting to the end of it. And remember I told you the twist? A few twisty things. What can be in the pipeline? So physical therapy. Do you guys have a licensed physical therapist in your emergency department? God, I love you. Can I come to you work with you? So I'm going to stop to it. Several studies. You need to publish this. This is what we need to talk about afterwards. Please, I'll help you. I'll make you famous. Just, just publish it. 
The having a physical therapist in the ED for patient presented with acute musculoskeletal component to it greatly beneficial for the patient-oriented health outcomes, such as reduction in pain and the overall use of opioid analgesia at one to three months post-discharge, rate of recurrence of pain, and consequently coming back to the ED. This is fantastic, and I'm very happy you having it. So, but it's still in a sort of, you know, early stage of development. Not everybody adopted it. Acupuncture. Do you guys use acupuncture in your show? So personally, I'm all for it, but the problem is I'm, I'm fighting against the literature and science, and science not quite there yet. Single case reporter case series clearly stating, as a single encounter, it's beautiful. And everybody revved up about the battlefield acupuncture, right? Auricular acupuncture comes from military, three needles, cures musculoskeletal pain, cures appendicitis, everybody's happy. But head-to-head -head comparison with the sham and no sham, it's not quite there yet. Even if it's there. So you do this session in your ED. What's next? Who's going to follow up this patient? Again, one session ever, helpful. So they need the serious, right? So who's going to follow up with this patient? Who's going to pay for it? Which insurance is going to cover it? So there's so many intricacies that come to it. But needless to say, there is a really, really good push and a need to explore this further and further and further. It's definitely helping patients with the chronic pain. Acute, not quite there yet. But just keep on the back of your mind. Similarly, trust cutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. Have my colleagues swear by it. You work for me so well. I respect their opinion, I love anecdotes, but I'm a hardcore scientist, so it's not enough. The only one systematic review I found in 2015 that compared TANS to placebo showed mildly marginal improvement of pain when it comes to TANS, but the problem was there's so many biases in the study, most related to sample size and blinding, and authors said, you know what, we can't even come up with a conclusion. We just, we can't, it's, it's awful. So not, that is not quite there yet. Cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive functional therapy is somewhere so holy guacamole, so music. Uh, now this, I mean, what are you doing? I, rightly so. Most of the data, if ever, comes into the chronic pain patients. Because, you know, all aspect of pain needs to be honored when it comes to chronic pain. When you look at the social, uh, psychological aspect of pain. But there are a growing body of literature that actually push into maybe it's not a bad idea to start this patient with acute painful syndromes. <clears throat> all the studies... There was a systematic review, 60 studies, but problem is outside of emergency department. Looked at the opioid-related pain, acute, postoperative, chronic, cancer, showed modest improvement of pain and very minimal reduction of your therapy for those who actually undergo or underwent CBT or CFT. Is it prime time yet? No, but something to consider. You guys ready? Two more slides. Magnesium. How many of you ever attended lecture by one and only Amalma II? EKGs, you guys love them? What does it say when it comes to hyperkalemia? What does it call this? Hyperkalemia is a... So, hyperkalemia, words of one and all among two, is a syphilis of the EKG. So, magnesium is the syphilis of ED analgesia. Why? Because it's given to everything and everyone. Patient has a headache, magnesium. Patient has renal colic, magnesium. Patient has a fibromyalgia, magnesium. Patient has a waiting room, magnesium. Why? Because the assumption is it's harmless. But my point is, if it's harmless, it does not mean it's effective. Again, case report, serious adversities, magnesium may be well. One of the largest systematic review to date by Dr. Morrell, just recently published. 80 RCTs, 80 guys, 6,000 patients, 50 trials, acute postoperative pain, 18, migraine, 5, renal colic. Six, chronic pain and neuropathic pain. Two, fibromyalgia. All trials failed to demonstrate analgesic equivalence of magnesium to any other type of analgesia. Modest at most improvement. And of course, 80 trials. What else were there? So here's the way I see it. It's one of the weakest again. NMD antagonism, which is a basis for magnesium to work on it, is not as good as ketamine, of course. And no matter what the study is coming out, mostly from Mid-Eastern countries, and I've seen it, magnesium for renal colic, maybe for everything else, the data is not quite there yet. If you're very pressed to give it, it will not harm to it. But I just want you to be conscious of the fact it may not work as good as you believe so. Lidocaine, Mayo Clinic on. Beautiful systematic review, eight trials, 532 uh, patients, clearly demonstrated that, no, my dear friends, intravenous lidocaine is not the drug we should be using routinely for patients presenting to DD with renal colic, 
headache or back pain. I was on a bandwagon when I started very big on it. I was pushing this drug like there's no tomorrow. We've done our studies and I was very happy and I've ordered it and I've worked. But then we did a study and lidocaine does not match analgesic efficacy of NSAIDs when it comes to renal colic, let alone opioids. Interestingly enough, combination of ketorolac and lidocaine did not provide any uh, additional analgesic in comparison to lidocaine. And this very review supports the notion. On case-by-case basis, with a subset of patient, primarily renal colic, who cannot tolerate NSAIDs, may not, or may have contraindication to opioids, you may consider giving it. But it's not a prime time, and we need more literature. So at the finish line, I'm gonna leave, leave you with this. It's very, very important. I want you to leave this with three things. The things I want you to know, the thing I want you to do, and the thing that I want you to transform. Do you remember what I said in the beginning of the talk? You are all heroes. Even though George said there isn't, you are. In the face of pain, you are the heroes because you are the defense, the first and only for some people. Just embrace it. But because of it, we need to do things slightly different. I'm not going to use this fancy word with a great power comes responsibility. No, it's not a power. It's our knowledge. It's our skill. So please, get to know your patient, not as we do on the wards, but specifically. Know what they have. Know the comorbidity. More importantly, know the drugs. So you will be very smart and good at upsetting and preventing bad drug-drug combination, drug-drug interactions. This is one. Please, do provide patient-centered pain syndrome-targeted approach. Not every, medic- not every headache is the same. Not every abdominal is the same. Individual approach. Individualized. Treatment plan by combining not pharmacological, pharmacological treatment modalities, you'll be phenomenal. Even more importantly, please do engage your patients in short decision-making. Tell them what you're going to give them. Tell them why you're going to give them. Tell them the route. Tell them the dose. Tell them what the alternative, and more importantly, tell them what the adverse effect of whatever therapeutic modality you choose. Engage them. How long does it take for you to get a concern for somebody who gets CPA for stroke? We're not going into details why not. It's necessary, but how long? Just give me the number. Two minutes, three minutes, consent. That's big, right? It's still there. You can tell them risk and this and this and this. How often do you talk to the patient? I'm going to give you morphine and you just walk away. For me, it's about 10 seconds. So if I spend one minute extra with the patient, tell them what's our analgesic regimen would be, why we're thinking it is, I guarantee it. 85% of patients from that role will love you because they need to hear this from you. Okay? And please combine non-pharmacological, pharmacological therapeutics. Things will get better. And I want you to, this is the most important part, to be transformative because everything I told you to this moment is transactional. Government tell us what to do. Hospital tell us what to do with the protocols and we expect to adhere. We need to change this. I want you to be creative and transformative by embrace the science of the fullest. Honor the anecdotes, honor your friends' stories, honor the patients. It's, it's actually even more of what works for them, but stick to the science. But please be kinds of facts. Not every science is good science. So try to learn what's better, what's good, but stick to the science, please. Keep pushing the boundaries. You guys are very progressive. Your shop is phenomenal because I have some of friends in attending to it. I know what you guys do. For kind of life, I have a physical therapist here. This is beautiful. And a good musical therapist. And then acupuncturist and a harpist. And life is perfect. So this is good. Push the boundaries of unknown. And lastly, nobody operates in silos. We are first line of defense. We are the heroes. But once we fix temporarily what we can do, that's what we're good at it. We need to ensure that we do good by patients in the long term. Because we all know that acute pain, which is poorly treated or untreated, can transform into chronic pain. And there's a problem. So collaborate with other specialties. Tell them what you did. Bring them on board. Learn from them. Teach them. And life is going to be very, very good for all of us. On this note, perfect timing. I thank you so much. I believe I have at least 15, 20 minutes, right? If time permits, I'll be more than happy to take any questions because you guys give me these evil looks and devil looks and somebody wants to take me outside. Any questions? Dr. Matov, I'm voicing some of the questions that were presented in the audience for you because they were hard to hear originally. The first question is, what are your thoughts on diclofenac? My idea about diclofenac, I love diclofenac. I'm using it myself. I have a shoulder issues. I'm using it all the time. And the back pain. So the way I put it, anything that has no neuropathic component to it, we should be using topical enzymes. What you're bringing up, the good point is compounded pharmaceuticals. It's a lection within itself. And I'm happy to talk about you offline based on what I know, but I'm actually getting more and more geared up for it. 
medication, you've named it, they're very good for neuropathic pain. And some people use locally. They believe you rub it in, your sciatica goes away. But in the tuchus or but in the lower back, it's going to be good. We put in the leg. Non-neuropathic component will be very beneficial for topical NSAIDs. So please recommend your patient to use it. And it's safer in patients who are taking systemic anticoagulants, have a drug-drug interactions, bad ulcers, topical NSAIDs work wonders, and they're not contraindicated. The second question, do you have any thoughts on metamazole? Metamazole. I'm originally from USSR. I was born in Latvia. It's one of the former republics, now Baltic states. We had beautiful pain medication and fever reliever called analgin, which is metamazole. FDA, remember? Oh, I'm very big on FDA. Committed another pharmaceutical crime against their US citizens by banning this medication. Apparently, there were cases of severe agronocytosis. Again, in the case of medication, was given like a gallons of it. It's a very effective medication. It's not NSAID by itself. It has some NSAID components to it. I know my Chilean colleagues use it. It's very big in South America. It's very big in Europe. We don't have it. FDA does not approve it. You just can't use it. It does. Oh, I remember. It does. It works. That's the most important thing. I'll take question and question. How do you dose morphine? So opioids, morphine solvate immediate release, tablet or liquid, three to five days, usually three days. And I do come in and I add answers to it if they can have it. So morphine solvate immediate release, if you look at the packet insert, it comes with 15 milligram every six hours. I've done research on it and we've published. Opioid naive patients don't do well with 15 milligram. They become very dysphoric. That's what morphine does. It's not euphoric, it's dysphoric. It makes them sweaty, nauseous, ready to pass out. So the dosing is 7.5 milligram per dose as a tablet. You can cut it in half or you can use the liquid. It comes as a liquid, five, um, 10 milligram per five ml. And that's the dose. You do one tablet every six hours for three days in conjunction with NSAIDs. I usually combine this two. What are your thoughts on oxycodone? So oxycodone itself is the most legally allowed opioid that has the most euphoria in it. I know maybe you missed my initial point when I come yeah. to euphoria. Yeah, I apologize. So I'm very big on qualitative approach to opioids, aka potential to cause euphoria. Oxycodone is an evil. If it was up to me, I would never allow this medication to be on the market at all. It's the much, by far the most euphorogenic. And if you remember history, it was the one that responsible for first-wave opioid epidemic in this country. When it comes to Voltaren gel, do you have any thoughts on putting ice on the area with the gel? So good question. So my, I'm a very simple guy. Don't put anything on anything unless there's a need to it. So here's the way I see it. Ice it as much as you can and then put the gel on and then walk away. Cold probably not going to do anything else. You must feel frostbite. Issue becomes when you put a heating pad on any topical medication. That's what becomes the problem, including topical NSAIDs. Please, this is none. But what you say is I usually big. Use the ice until you feel like it's frozen and then just use topical NSAIDs as you need it. In between, you can still ice it. But once it's on, I personally do not put anything on it. Just let it be. Quick question. Um, in regards to anti-inflammatories, I think there's some newer literature, especially like sports medicine trained as well. And we talk about actually not wanting the anti-inflammatory effects in the acute phase because there's some degree of healing that occurs with that inflammatory response. Also in the setting of strains with like muscular tears, you don't want to cause the platelet aggregation. So I thought it's not to prescribe anti-inflammatories for the first three days, then you can prescribe. What's your perspective and thoughts on that? So I'm, I'm a different school because I can say the literature that the notion that NSAIDs um, delay the bone healing and the setting of acute fractures and everything else was actually refuted because all the studies were done on rats, not in humans. There are literature or some of the reference coming up exactly supporting your claim process. I don't yet quite there yet. I still believe if it only systemic onsets, it's fine, but I very much be on topical anesthetic, especially with the case of tendon muscles and ligaments injuries. I, I personally don't, 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 not, I'm not quite there yet. I'm not afraid of it. That's going to impair the healing. Then that's a different story. If you exclude an inflammatory component to it, there is no role to do NSAIDs at all. I'm with you 100%. Tendinitis does it. Tendinosis does not. Oh yeah, you, you, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm misconstrued. Everything you said, it makes perfect sense. Any degree of inflammation, you still be, should be using NSAIDs as long as there's no contraindication. If inflammatory component is ruled out entirely, I would probably be as with you. I would not give insights. Thank you so much. Um, talking about like your lethal or your lethal triad, um, we have so many patients coming in on gabapentin. Do you ever change your dosing or change your um, class of medications based on a patient's taking gabapentin regularly? 
That's a wonderful question. And this what it's one of the challenging ones. As you know, you need to titrate GABA pending to get a certain dosing threshold, right? You start with a 100 TID, then every other day you go by 100 with a maximum of 3,600, which is 1,200 milligrams per dose three times a day. It takes a while to get them. They develop some talents to develop some analgesic efficacy. I am very much against to abruptly stop in any medication that have no control over it. What I usually do is, and I'm praying that I do, I usually try to get a hold of the physician who follows this patient if they have one, or at least get them referred to the clinic and then figure this out. More importantly, when it comes to opioid taper, at no time at all, we as a physician should not stop in anybody for any opioids. This is a disaster, same as the benzodiazepines. But if I believe that patient has a broken leg and I believe they need an opioid, I can have a conversation with the patient. I can have a conversation with their physician. At least with the three days duration, I may actually ask him not to take the gabapentinoids. Risk of dying is significantly higher than continued gabapentinoids. That is my recommendation. Yes, sir. Um, you had mentioned steroids and back pain, but what do you think about steroids and chronic joint pain, osteoarthritis? Um, I don't know. I, I think I heard a, on MRAP or something like that. They compared a study with intraarticular joint uh, steroids and just intramuscular steroids as an adjunct to all the right. other things. So uh, the question is steroids and chronic pain. Uh, yeah, you nay. You know, for the initial studies of chronic pain, steroids might be okay. You know, I used to be time when I was giving Kenalog into the joints and then studies show stop doing it because it destroying cartilage and everything else. Problem with steroids, such a heavy medication, do not deny. The longer you keep the patient on, on them, you're going to do bad by them. So the only thing I would recommend, topical steroids as a list of evil for the long period of time. Short course of steroids for chronic inflammatory pain, it's a go. But long term, we need to be very careful how we're going to board this. So... Again, you're right. Science is there. It's supporting, but checks and balance when it comes to chronic pain. Um, I'll probably take one more question, right? Trust me, I would love to stay here, but I just need to apparently make it somewhere. Um, I was just wondering if you could talk about your general approach to pain management in pregnant patients and how you kind of go about that, especially for like musculoskeletal pain or like in trauma or that kind of situation if you don't, if it's in the period where NSAIDs aren't contraindicated. So uh, pain management trauma patient. Again, talk within itself. I'll make it very, very easy. Opioids, local anesthetic, aka I'll just the nerve block, which is beautiful, and uh, NSAIDs, with the exception of the third trimester. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Matov, for the excellent Grand Rounds presentation. It was brilliant. And the energy in the room for the podcast listeners it was really special. The residents and consultants were so engaged with the topic. There were so many great questions coming in from online audience and in-person audience. And the discussions with Dr. Matov lasted in the room for quite a while afterwards. He's that kind of speaker. And I highly recommend that you invite him out to your shop if you're in charge of the didactic program, wherever you are. He's a phenomenal educator. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode and the entire first year of the show. Please don't forget to like, comment, and follow the show on whatever platform you're using. And join us in 2023 as we have a new logo design coming. We have great content coming and amazing giveaways. Alex and I record, edit, and produce this show entirely on our own because we love doing it for you all. And we both continually agree that it's the most rewarding and enjoyable thing in our administrative lives. And that's because of you listening. We hope that each of you have a love-filled and joyful holiday season and a safe and happy new year. The Always On EM Podcast. Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds.